Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Oh, come on, how would you have solved it, Gavin? Have Constable Cossenfer pop round the village green and say, What's all this then? Ass. The following podcast contains Other Trucker That hurt like a butt cheek on a stick. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you, uh, when you call that press conference before the raid had actually started, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 399, the Waco Me Up Before You Go-Go edition of the show, and it's part two of the Waco Siege, where we, uh, talk about all the stupid things the government did to make a bad situation much, much worse. Stay tuned. What the hell are you thinking? Podcast is brought to you by the Spin Doctors. When you've got public relations debacle, just follow the doctor's orders. Is your reputation ailing? Have you broken your public image? Is there a pox on your messaging? You need Spin Doctors. No PR problem is too big for Spin Doctors to treat. From late night Twitter rants to problematic podcast appearances, Spin Doctors will come in, triage your situation, and prescribe the right course of treatment to make the problem all better. From social media influencers to wash-up cartoonists all the way to federal agencies who might have gotten a little ahead of themselves in the press release, Spin Doctors can diagnose your dumbassery and get your reputation a dose of repair. Spin Doctors, when your public image is on life support, you need a specialist, you need Spin Doctors. The cult actually called or known as the Branch Davidians is an offshoot of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. They broke off from the church and moved out here from Los Angeles back in 1935. But despite the longevity of the cult in and around the Waco area, very few Waco residents that we spoke with had ever even heard of this cult before today. The peace of John Zanter's Sunday morning was shattered, literally, when gunfire erupted a half mile down the road from where he lived. How many gunshots did you hear? It was quite a few, you know. I couldn't really say how many it was, but he knew it was something that wasn't normal. Despite the tragedy, Zanter says he doesn't mind having the cult members as neighbors. If they mind their own business and we mind our own, it's, they got a right to be there too. Back when I was a military cop. What now, Grandpa? We had a standoff one night. For real, a 911 call came in that there was a dude with a gun threatening to shoot his wife and anyone who came in to try to stop him. This was a big fucking deal. Because this kind of thing didn't happen on the backwater Air Force Base where I was stationed. Crazy little Mayberry base. So we jumped on the call, surrounded the house, and waited for our equivalent of a SWAT team to get geared up and come out to the scene. Did I mention this was the kind of shit that didn't happen where I was stationed? So it wasn't like our SWAT team was just sitting by the phone waiting for us to call. It was after midnight on a Sunday, and we were told that it would take about three hours for the SWAT team to get there. Now, the thing is, this house where this was supposed to be happening, well, uh... Something wasn't right. Yeah, there there were no lights on, which, okay, if if I was holding my wife hostage, I'm probably going to keep the lights off, too. But, you know, there were no curtains in the windows, and there were no cars in the driveway, and to top it off as we were evacuating the neighbors, they all told us, No one lives there! Which, 
you know, kind of changes the dynamic in a hostage situation. Was it possible that someone had broken into the house and was holding their wife hostage? Sure. If no one lived there, there was no phone. So how did they call us? Cell phone? Now, 1994, and when we checked the uh, records for the 911 call, it came from a payphone about half a mile away from the house. So uh, more and more, it was kind of looking like our hostage situation wasn't exactly so much a situation. But the lieutenant in charge wanted to wait for the SWAT team to come and storm what was now pretty obviously an empty house. So we sat there for an hour, sat there for another hour. And finally, our overall cop commander decided, you know, I'm not going to wait for this. It's the middle of the night. I'm going to go home. We're going to resolve the situation. And who did they call on to resolve the situation? None other than your humble pod host. Fucking hero, huh? No, not me, but my dog was kind of a hero. So me and Robbie, that was my dog. He's a good dog. I love Robbie. We snuck up to the house and we quietly opened the door with a master key and we yelled in for anyone who was in there to surrender right now or my dog was going to come in and bite their ass. No one answered. So I sent Robbie in to go in there and bite their ass. Robbie came back a couple of minutes later. Didn't find shit because no one was there. It was a hoax. But, you know, made for a pretty good story at the bowling alley over beers the next morning. The reason I bring this up is because Sometimes a thing that you think will happen one way can quite suddenly become an entirely different thing. A complicated situation suddenly becomes really simple, and sometimes a simple situation can, uh... Turn to shit. Yeah, which is what happened 30 years ago when the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives raid on the Ranch Davidian compound in your Waco, Texas. Turn to shit! Largely because the ATF fucked up real, real bad. I mean, the Davidians, they didn't help or anything, but, you know, this whole scene could have gone down a lot differently. I should take a minute to explain what the fuck the ATF is, because uh, a bureau that specializes in smokes, booze, guns, and explosives, explosive always gets left off. You know, it, it sounds... Sounds kind of awesome. Yeah, but they're not focusing on ways to make those things more fun. They're focused on ways to control and, most importantly, tax those things. Not awesome. Their roots go back as far as 1886 when they were first formed as part of the Treasury Department, a dedicated group tasked to root out illegal alcohol distilling. Down south, we called them revenuers or revenue men, and they were widely hated. When Prohibition came around, they became the enforcers of the Volstead Act. Elliot Ness and his untouchables, revenue men. And in 1968, when the Gun Control Act was passed because white people were terrified black people would buy guns, firearms were added to their little portfolio. Not the black people, the ATF. In 1972, they became an independent law enforcement agency within the Treasury Department, kind of like the Secret Service. And finally, in 2002, they were moved under Homeland Security. Now, there is no particular need or reason for the ATF to exist. Their tax enforcement could easily be handled by the IRS and the law enforcement function by any of the myriad other federal law enforcement agencies. A fact that is pointed out every single time their agency comes up for funding in Congress, which has given the Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Bureau a bit of an inferiority complex, which will become very, very relevant very, very soon. 
So last week we talked about Vernon Wayne Howe. I guess I should call him David Koresh now, who had rose to lead the cult of 126 Branch Davidians at the Mount Carmel compound and how the ATF became interested in his doings. If you missed all my jokes about Vernon doing a guy's mom, you need to go back and listen to last week's show. This week, we're going to talk about what happened when the federal government tried to do something about Koresh's cult. It did not go well. You see, the ATF was going through a bit of an image problem in the early 1990s. Kind of understated. <laughs> As part of the ongoing investigations into militias, white nationalists, and good old right-wing fascism, they had undercover informants set up to buy illegal weapons from a dude by the name of Randy Weaver. It was hardly a massive arms deal. It was a couple of illegally sawed-off shotguns. I mean, it's not great, but it's not a big fucking deal. Thing was, this guy Randy Weaver, he's a fucking nut job. Former Green Beret, religious zealot, Nazi curious if not full-on Nazi, and a big-time off-the-grid fuck-the-government kind of dude. So when they arrested Randy through what could be honestly described as entrapment, they were planning on him flipping and becoming an informant for the ATF. Randy did not want to become an informant for the ATF and promptly took off to his mountain stronghold. So the U.S. Marshals were sent in to get the guy, and while they were surveilling his mountain stronghold, that's when the shooting started. When it was over, one marshal, Weaver's dog, and Weaver's 14-year-old son were dead. This, of course turned into a standoff where the FBI took over and the FBI's bungling would cost the life of Weaver's wife and Weaver being wounded. The standoff lasted for 10 days, became a media debacle, and a right-wing cause celebre. It's a fucking mess now. The government looked bad. Randy Weaver's not a good guy, but the government fucked up and people died. Innocent people died. And worse, as far as the government was concerned, it was a public relations problem for the brand spanking new Clinton administration. And though this was hotly denied by the ATF officials then and now, it's pretty clear that the agency was looking for a win, a slam dunk case that they could parade across the pages of the paper and show the country that the ATF was, you know. Oh, they're not so bad. Down in, uh, in Texas in 1992, a juicy case fell into their laps when the local sheriff called up with a story about the UPS delivery man and a box full of hand grenades. When investigators started looking into the story, they were like, This place has everything. Guns, grenades, automatic weapons, child brides, a guy who thinks he's Jesus. It was ready-made for 1990s cable news. It's ready-made for cable news today. And that's how the U.S. government began the investigation into the Branch Davidians for the manufacture, sale, and possession of illegal weapons. Now, spoiler alert, the Branch Davidians were making, selling, and in possession of illegal weapons ranging from automatic AR-15s to automatic AK-47s and fucking grenade launchers. To the facts of the case, and they are undisputed. What remains in dispute to this very day is how many, what state these weapons were in, and whether or not they were intended for sale or for the end of the world, which the Branch Davidians was very much believing was right around the corner. What is undisputed is that the ATF had fucked up from the word go. On July 30th, 1992, weeks after the initial report, the ATF visited one Henry McMahon. Who's that? Who's that guy? Henry? Oh, he was just the guy that sold the uh, Branch Davidians all their guns. Now, look, I was never a special agent or a detective of any kind, but, you know, I was a lowly beat cop, and say I suspected someone of selling weed... 
I probably wouldn't just go up to the guy that sold weed to the guy I suspected of selling weed and say, hey, uh, are there any legal pot sales going on around here? This bump for all that good police work, good buddy. But you know what? <laughs> That's exactly what the ATF did. Now, McMahon told the ATF that he was, sure, this was all some sort of huge mistake. I mean, let me tell you what. Let me just get old David Koresh on the phone. We'll arrange a meeting where the ATF can inspect the weapons on the compound, take a look at all the Davidians' paperwork for, you know, all those perfectly legal weapons. Is this, is this what a guilty man would do? Well, the ATF thought it was and declined the offer to work things out like that. Now, I didn't find any specific source for what happened after the ATF left, but uh, human nature being what it is, I'm pretty sure old Henry was on the phone to David's Koresh as soon as the fucking cars left the parking lot. When the ATF arrived in McLennan County, Texas, where the compound was located, Sheriff Harwell told them that, yeah, you knew the Davidians had guns out at Mount Carmel. Hell, his boys love to go out there and use their firing range. In fact, you know what? I'll just get old David Kresh on the phone, tell him we're coming out to the compound, and we're going to have a little talk about the guns. You know, what's wrong with notifying him? That's exactly what he told the agents. And the agents presumably said something along the lines of, uh, <laughs> That's crazy talk. You can't do a super-duper secret squirrel investigation if you just call up the people you're investigating. Not like, you know, you do when you go see the guy that sold them all their guns that you think they're illegal. No, 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 no. What you got to do is set up a surveillance on the compound by sending a bunch of suspiciously old college students across the road from the compound. You know, college students. Men in their 30s and 40s with short military-style haircuts and driving expensive cars and not enrolled or attending any classes in the local college. You know, like college kids totally did in the early 1990s. On top of that, I mean, guns and underage girls are good, but in the early 1990s, if you really wanted to get the wheels greased on your investigation, you needed a connection to, uh... Drugs? Is it drugs? Yeah, it had to be drugs because after one Ronald Reagan uh, 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 he said it. created a new program where within certain parameters, the use of military assets could be used in drug-related investigations like helicopters, armored personnel carriers, spy planes, you know, the cool shit. So if you were planning a big made-for-TV operation, by God, you're going to want some cool shit to be around when the cameras start rolling. So the ATF tossed in an imaginary math lab just for funsies. In addition to all the middle-aged college kids across the road, for some reason, highly noticeable military aircraft suddenly began circling the Mount Vernon compound. You know, as military aircraft so often do, hundreds of miles from the nearest military base. And finally, as with all really good sting operations, you need an inside man. So, the ATF sends an undercover officer by the name of Robert Rodriguez to pose as a local student presumably Robert was 35, 40-year-old, you know, a student, to learn about the teachings of David Koresh and get access to the compound. But uh, Robert was fairly quickly marked as not being entirely on the up and up, probably because he kept saying things like, So, what about this gun thing, huh? According to a Time Magazine article from 1995, quote, Koresh was already suspicious of Rodriguez, but according to one surviving cult member, he hoped to recruit him anyway, unquote. Rodriguez would go on to play another major role in events that transpired, but he was not the biggest hint that the feds were about to drop the hammer on David Koresh because that hint would come in a phone call from the local mailman who was also David Koresh's brother-in-law. I'm still getting ahead of myself because there's another element in all of this that need to be mentioned, the plan. The average Ruski son don't take a dump without a plan. Now again, 
was never part of any special tactics team. No advanced training and tactical shit. All I had was a three-week course on infantry skills where I spent most of those time trying to get into the pants of this hot redhead in my class. How did it go? I only got to third base, but that's not important right now. But I did pay enough attention to know that if you plan on storming a large group of buildings held by heavily armed individuals, you're going to want some kind of plan. More from the Time Magazine article, quote, The elements are almost the stuff of comedy. Federal agents get wind of a surreptitious arms hoard. Then they set up a surveillance of compound of a 40 using 40-year-old agents passing to college students. Suddenly, a raid on the compound is imminent without a detailed plan on how to carry it out. A sketchy plan is then drawn up and ignored. Meanwhile, the targets of the raid know something is up, and their watchers know that the targets know, but still think surprise is a possibility. That's where the comedy turns into tragedy. The ATF has had a long tradition of going in with guns blazing. For example, the legendary Elliot Ness and his Prohibition-era untouchables were not FBI men, but rather direct predecessors of today's FBI agents. The Branch Davidian saga was true to tradition. Little consideration was given to arresting David Koresh outside his Mount Carmel compound. Indeed, after its preliminary investigations, the ATF began preparing for what would be the biggest raid in its history. All it lacked was a plan and the element of surprise. Even though a raid had been set for March 1st, the mandatory documents for such a plan were not ready by February 23rd. When acting special agent in charge Daryl Dyer arrived from Kansas City and asked to see the paperwork, he found that none existed. In the next four days, Dyer and fellow agent William Crone drew up a plan, but it was never distributed. Meanwhile, Koresh was already suspicious, having noticed the college students who had moved in across the house during a 77-acre compound looked like people only a few years shy of their 25th reunion, unquote. So, lacking a proper plan, and with the element of surprise long gone, the ATF decided, you know what? No. We'll do it live! Fuck it! Do it live! I can, I'll write it, and we'll do it live! The date for the raid was supposed to be several days after the day it happened, but the local newspaper had a story that was too fucking good to pass up. Your article, which I quoted last week, was a massive expose about Koresh's penchant for marrying teenage girls because God told him it was a good idea. Quoting now from Wikipedia, quote, The ATF had planned their raid for Monday, March 1st, 1993, with the codename Showtime. Yeah, great. If you're going to raid a compound full of heavily armed religious cultists, you want to say the same damn thing that two kids with a boombox say when they get on a one train. The ATF later claimed that the raid was moved up a day to February 28, 1993, in response to the Waco Tribune Herald's The Sinful Messiah series of articles which the ATF had tried to prevent from being published. In a February 24th meeting, the Tribune Herald and staff ATF agent Philip Kojanki and two other agents, the ATF could not give the newspaper staff a clear idea of what action was planned or when. The Tribune Herald informed, well, that's only because they didn't know, <laughs> the Tribune Herald informed the ATF that they were publishing the series, which included an editorial calling for local authorities to act. Personnel of the Tribune Herald found out about the imminent raid after the first installment of the Sinful Messiah had already appeared on February 27th, unquote. So, with the story in the paper, the ATF decided they needed to go as soon as possible, and the raid was set for Sunday, February 28th, nineteen. 93. Everything was set in motion. All the pieces were hastily assembled and set to roll. And that's where the wheels fell off the whole fucking thing. Going back to the Time article, quote, On the day of the raid, an ambulance company hired by the ATF agency leaked word of Operation Trojan Horse to a local TV station who sent a cameraman to check on the situation. The cameraman, 
ask a local postman, David Jones, for directions to the Koresh compound. He also told Jones about the raid. Jones, who happened to be David Koresh's brother-in-law, told his father about the impending operation, and the word reached Koresh. Koresh was leading a Bible session when he was tipped off. In attendance was Robert Rodriguez. Remember Robert? An undercover ATF agent. In a dramatic confrontation, Koresh, looking agitated, dropped his Bible and muttered the words, the kingdom of God, and then said, neither the ATF team nor the National Guard will ever get me. They got me once and they'll never get me again. Looking out the window, he said, they're coming, Robert. The time has come. Rodriguez immediately made an excuse to leave in order to warn the ATF team that there was no longer any hope of surprise. As he headed out the door, Koresh grabbed his hand and said, good luck, Robert, unquote. I would love to have been a fly on the wall as Robert Rodriguez tried to come up with an excuse, any excuse, to get the fuck out of Dodge and call the boys back at the ATF office. Koresh just flat out fucking told him that he knew Robert was part of it all. So what do you say in that situation? I mean, you, 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 got, you got called in for your shift at a Whataburger, probably isn't going to fly. Sudden onset diarrhea isn't really going to work because they probably got shitters there. So you really got to dig deep for some reason to get the hell out of Dodge. And I could only think that he might have said something like, See, the problem here is, is that my little brother this morning got his arm caught in the microwave and, and uh, my grandmother dropped acid and she freaked out and hijacked a school bus full of penguins. So it's kind of a family crisis. Still, Rodriguez got out. He got on the phone. He called up the people in charge of the raid and tried to warn them that Koresh and the Davidians knew that they were coming, that they were not baking them a cake. Indeed, they were making them a huge shit sandwich, and his superior said, oh, You'll probably be fine. We'll just have to hurry. At 9.45 a.m., a convoy of vehicles pulled down the long, long driveway to the compound, including an actual cattle trailer full of armed ATF agents. Quoting from a true TV story on the raid, quote, I didn't even hear the first shots. My mind was focused on getting out of the camp cattle trailer without tripping over the boots of the agents in front of me and not busting my ass. But by the time my feet splashed down on the mud driveway in front of the Branch Davidian compound, I knew things weren't going according to plan. The battle was underway. The plan had seemed so simple. Hide 76 ATF agents inside two tarp-covered cattle trailers, slip the trailers unnoticed down the 200-yard-long, rutted, muddy drive that led to the Branch Davidian compound, create a diversion with a trio of borrowed Texas National Guard helicopters, storm the building the size of a city block by making multiple simultaneous entries on the first and second floors, snatch the cult's cache of pistols, rifles, and machine guns, and hand grenades without hurting anyone, unquote. An archived copy of a 1995 Wall Street Journal article said, quote, regarding the February 28th, 1993 attack on the Waco compound by 100 Bureau of, Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms agents, who shot first? Roland Balistreos, one of the first AT agents out of the cattle trail that morning, told Texas Rangers investigating the case that the first shots came from agents shooting the dogs. He recanted that at the Davidian trial last year, insisting that the Davidians had shot first. The ATF claimed to have a video proving the Davidians shot first, but they refused to make it public, unquote. 45 minutes after the raid began and the shooting started, it was all over. From Wikipedia, quote, Sheriff Lieutenant Lynch of the McLennan County Sheriff's Department contacted the ATF and negotiated a ceasefire. Sheriff Harwell states in a William Gazeki's documentary, Waco, The Rules of Engagement, that the ATF agents withdrew only after they were out of ammunition. 
ATF agent Chuck Kustemeyer later wrote, about 45 minutes of the shootout, the volume of gunfire greatly started slack. We were running out of ammunition. The Davidians, however, had plenty. In all, four ATF agents had been killed during the firefight, and another 16 had been injured. After the ceasefire, the Branch Davidians allowed the ATF dead and wounded to be evacuated and held their fire after the ATF retreat. Well, that's great. That's just fucking great, man. Now what the fuck are we supposed to do? Where's the real pretty shit now, man? That's it, man. Game over, man. It's game over. What the fuck are we gonna do now? Five Branch Davidians were killed in the raid, and two more were killed at the hands of the Branch Davidians after having been wounded. Their bodies were buried on the grounds. Nearly six hours after the 11.30 a.m. ceasefire, another cultist, Michael Schroeder, was shot dead by ATF agents who alleged he fired a pistol at agents as he attempted to re-enter the compound with two other members of the Davidians, unquote. The ATF, who had multiple chances to handle this case in a much lower-key fashion and decided not to take them for, uh... Reasons. What reasons? Well, let's let Dick Revis of Texas Monthly, a stalwart of journalism in a Texas institution, explain. Quote, Although an arsenal of illegal weapons was found inside the compound, I now believe that the initial raid on Mount Carmel, in which five residents and four ATF agents were killed, was part of an offensive whose goal was to impress congressional budget makers and the public as much as to enforce gun laws. It was, in other words, a public relations event. ATF agents had even called the gun grab Showtime. The agency's brass misled Governor Ann Richards when they described a drug nexus at Mount Carmel to persuade her and the Texas National Guard to supply them with helicopters. Always good video footage props, unquote. And that's pretty fucking damning for the ATF, but Revis goes on to say, quote, and the first shots fired during the initial raid on February 28th, 1993 were fired either at those helicopters or from them not during the ground combat that the world witnessed on TV. The defenders of Mount Carmel, eight of whom were sentenced to prison terms in San Antonio trial last year, may have fired their guns out of self-defense or simple fear, but I now understand their theology also instructed them to kill in order to save Koresh, unquote. I'm not saying that Koresh and his band of Mary Jesus freaks would have simply accepted the ATF coming in and going through their books. But in the early days of the investigation, before the allegations of Koresh's kid diddling became public in a big way, there was a legit chance that that could happen. But after months of poorly planned and implemented surveillance, an undercover agent in the church, and all kinds of outside warning from their gun dealer to members of the local community, the Davinia's paranoia was amped up to a fever pitch, and these were people who were literally expecting the end times any fucking day. In my opinion, it is always better to go light during an investigation, and the ATF rejected that in favor of... The shot. The money shot. Of helicopters, perp walks, and splashy headlines that would make Congress sit up and take notice. The initial Waco raid was a PR exercise first, and a law enforcement operation second, and what happened on February 28th, 1993, was the result. What happened after that day is a totally different beast. Because with a brand new presidential administration looking to buff their law and order credentials, and four dead officers on their hands, and an attorney general who had something to prove mainly that a woman could be as much as a hard-ass as any man. They let the FBI fucking run wild, and the FBI was not in the mood to take prisoners. 
There are myriad stories of what happened during the 51 days between, between the ATF raid and the fiery end of the Branch Davidians. It's become tainted with conspiracy theory and the, wor- and the worst domestic terror attack in U.S. history. So far, anyway. In Oklahoma City, a year afterwards, that so now trying to untangle the cords of what happened and what people think happened takes longer than trying to untangle the cords of the Christmas lights after a year in the box. The fact remains that 75 people died and 25 of them were children and they died badly. The evidence supports that Koresh ordered the compound soaked down with kerosene when he knew the final assault was coming both the recordings provided by the government and the absolute truth that Vernon Koresh was a fucking nutjob wackadoo that believed God was whispering in his ear about the end of time and that it's perfectly fine to fuck little girls. So no, I don't believe that the government is lying about the sea, how the siege ended. But the evidence is equally clear that the government fucked this up from the start, that the whole thing could have been avoided with just a modicum of restraint, forethought, and fucking professionalism. And I don't want to climb up on a soapbox, but you know what? There's no one here that can keep him off his damn soapbox. You think Gavin can? Please. So here's my rant. There's always been a healthy dose of paranoia in this fucked up country. It came baked in with how we were created. So when the United States federal fucking government is as grossly incompetent as they were in Waco, yeah, I guess I should say somewhere along this, that this wasn't even in Waco. It was Waco adjacent. That it, sure, it not only did it pour fire on the fucking compound, it poured fire on the conspiracy theories of every wackaloo nutsack with an axe to grind and zero critical thinking skills that's going to hop on this bullshit like Vernon Howell hopped on George Roden's mom. You do not need to be a fucking Harvard educational lawyer to know that religious nuts with a crackpot messiah and a doomsday prophecy need to be handled lightly. Yet somehow it took the death of innocent children both at Waco and Oklahoma City to get it through the heads of the supposed fucking professionals that they're not Pat Garrett chasing Billy the goddamn kid. And we are living with the post hoc effects of this gross incompetence to this very day with wannabe patriot cowboy dipshits and bird sanctuaries to moony splinter cults worshiping a goddamn AR-15 as their messiah in their own Texas compound just a few hours drive from Mount Carmel. I'm not saying they wouldn't be there if the ATF did their fucking jobs right 30 years ago, but I suspect, I suspect there will be a lot fewer of them. Finally, if you stumbled on this show, because you thought I would be on the New World Order secret government train that you're currently on and have somehow held on this long before turning the show off, I want to say, good for you. You listen to the end. Maybe you learn something. But I do want you to know, there's no secret conspiracy. It's pretty out in the open that the government is fucking stupid. They're not even really trying to hide it. And if you were to overthrow the government, you would just be replacing one kind of stupid with another kind of stupid entirely. So... I guess I just want you to, you know, calm down, have some dip. The federal government isn't coming to get you or your guns. Frankly, they would just as soon keep on ignoring you and your wingnut friends strutting around your camo body armor, which is exactly what they're doing every fucking day. All you got to do is be cool, stay out of the Capitol, and stop believing that Donald Trump is fighting with Jesus and JFK Jr. to defeat a cabal of Hollywood pedophiles. Adrenochrome is not a thing. Hunter S. Thompson was tripping balls on acid when he wrote that line of fear and loathing. The only person less likely to have deep insight into a world-spanning cabal of secret societies harvesting children for imaginary drugs, then Donald Trump is an aging hippie hopped up on LSD, rioted about harvesting children for imaginary drugs. Check your sources 
and enjoy this nice bowl of ranch dip and these ridge chips that I brought you. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. That is it for the show this week. Moderately proud of myself for being able to thread the needle of cracking jokes about a national fucking tragedy and to keep the jokes safely on the government and not the innocent people who died. It's a comedy podcast, but it's also it's a history podcast, so sometimes you gotta talk about things other than cheesy 80s movies and Crystal Pepsis like national fucking tragedies. Speaking of classically bad business decisions, rate and review this pod wherever you got it. It helps others find the show and make a Crystal Pepsi-sized blunder by listening to it. If you think what we do is worth a dollar, hit us up at patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. I promise all the money will not go to a Texas compound where I proclaim myself a messiah. Texas weather is terrible. Our compound will be on the coast of Oregon. Now, you need to do everything Jeremy tells you to do in the closing credits. Otherwise, he will assemble a crack squad of special podcast agents who will surround your home and lob preloaded Zooms onto your porch with all the Seltzer King shows on them. So, for me, Dave, you put the boom boom into my heart like a flashbang through the bedroom window. Blood cell producer, my best friend told me what you did last night, and I have reported that to my superiors at the agency. Gavin and all the fictional undercover cultists on the show, we want to say... Wake me up before you go-go is a wildly tasteless joke to make all things considered. And we regret to tell you that we're not better than making a wildly tasteless joke. And we'll see you all next week. What the Hell Were You Thinking stars Dave Bledsoe and features Gavin St. James and several fictional minions. The show is produced by Kimberly Steele and a part of the Seltzer Kings Podcast Network. You can find more information on the show on their website, whatthehellpodcast.com, or on Twitter at thehell underscore podcast, or on Facebook as What The Hell Podcast. Thanks for listening. I have no ending for this, so I take a small bow. 400?